Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, formerly known as Nonprofit U. Our podcast is an extension of our community, and we provide a forum where nonprofit stakeholders can share lessons learned and discuss the latest developments in the industry. My name is Valerie Leonard, your host. I'm the founder of Nonprofit Utopia, the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. We provide a safe space for you to improve your leadership skills while building a high-impact organization through networking, professional development, and training. You can find out more about us on nonprofitutopia.com, Facebook, and Twitter. I encourage you to follow us and to comment early and often. This is a social show, and we ask that you share the link to today's episode in your networks as we speak. Today's hashtags are Nonprofit Utopia, Illinois Supreme Court, Perspective to the People, and Daniel Epstein. You can also leave comments on blogtalkradio.com forward slash Nonprofit Utopia. The chat room is open and you can post comments and questions. You can also email me questions at ValerieFLeonard at nonprofitutopia.com. And for obvious reasons, I won't be able to respond to you while we're on the air, but I promise you that if you do email me, I will respond just as quickly as possible. We encourage you to sign up for our mailing list to keep abreast of the latest developments with the Nonprofit Utopia community. We've included a link to our mailing list in the comment section for this episode. If you're a nonprofit practitioner, you should be very interested in the inner workings of the Illinois Supreme Court, particularly if you work in the areas of family services or social criminal, and or restorative justice. The rules and practices surrounding evidence, access to competent counsel, sentencing guidelines, and diversity, equity, and inclusion determine the degree to which justice is truly served. We'll talk about the issues surrounding the role of the court, the negative consequences of faulty practices for preserving DNA evidence, restorative justice, community courts, and how community stakeholders can help create equal justice for all. Today's guest is Attorney Daniel A. Epstein. He's a candidate for the Illinois Supreme Court, and Daniel is an Evanston native and resident. Until he left the campaign, he worked for Chicago-based firm Jenner & Block, where he made his mark serving clients pro bono in courts in Cook County and all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. Daniel wrote an article in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin in 2018 explaining how Cook County residents were being stripped of their ability to appeal wrongful evictions because of failure to provide court reporters or digital recording infrastructure. In June of 2019, as a result of this article, advocacy from Daniel and others, digital recording hardware was finally installed in Cook County's eviction courts. 
Daniel is the co-founder of Perspective to the People. Perspective partnered in, with 29th Ward Alderman Chris Talia Farrow and the Black Club in Chicago's Austin neighborhoods to provide free citizen-owned security cameras to homeowners in an area with concerns about crime. He also serves on the board of directors for the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs and on the Young Professionals Council of the Lawndale Christian Legal Center. Daniel received his law degree from the University of Chicago Law School. He received his bachelor's degree in economics and political science from Washington University in St. Louis, where he ran varsity track for four years. He ran the 400-meter dash. So as you can see, we have a very, very well-qualified candidate here. Um, and without further ado, I'm just going to go into our discussion with Daniel. So, so Daniel, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. You're Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. We're honored to have you on the show. And before we get into the heart of our conversation, I just want to take a few minutes to ask some very foundational questions so that we're all on the same page. Can you give us an overview of the roles and responsibilities of the Illinois Supreme Court? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, so again, thank you so much for having me. And uh, and this is this actually really goes to the core of what this election is all about. What does the Illinois Supreme Court do? Uh, there are three levels of courts in Illinois. The first is the trial court level. We call it the circuit court. That's usually the, the kind of stuff that, uh, that you see on TV, right? We're going to determine guilt mm -hmm. or innocence. We're going to determine liability or not liability. That's really uh, most of what you see on TV are trial courts. If there's an error made at the trial court, uh, people can appeal to the appellate court saying, please, uh, second level of court, please fix the error of the trial court. And if you think that that second level of court, that appellate court, made an error, then you can appeal up to a higher court, the Illinois State Supreme Court, saying, please fix the, the error of the lower courts. So there's kind of this three mm -hmm. layers. Uh, the lowest court makes mm -hmm. does the trials, and then the top two courts are there to fix errors. They're called courts of review. They review uh, what the lower courts do. And what the, the Illinois Supreme Court um, says goes for the, for the lower courts. They have to follow uh, what the what the highest court does and its interpretation of the law, all of that falls into one of its two buckets of authority. That all of that mm -hmm. falls into its adjudicative authority, but there's this second bucket, a non-adjudicative authority that's super important. That's all about the rules that dictate how our courts operate, rules of procedure, of evidence, of ethics, things like determining design standards of courthouses. That has a big impact on access to justice. Wow data and technological infrastructure of the court, attorney discipline, who gets to be a lawyer and how, and on and on and on. The Illinois Supreme Court, unlike other courts, is really kind of like the chief executive of our justice system. And that's really where my campaign is focusing uh, on its, uh, the way in which the Illinois Supreme Court makes policy through its non-adjudicative authority. And that stuff has a big impact on our experience with the justice system, whether we experience bias, corruption, fairness, whether we find truth. All of that stuff is dictated by that policy-making authority, that non-adjudicative authority of the Illinois Supreme Court. That's amazing. I, 
I heard you say something about the design of the courthouse itself can actually yeah. impact how justice is administered. Can can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So the Illinois Supreme Court uh, sets design standards for courthouses. So actually the physical layout, but also the data and technological infrastructure of our courts. So, um, so for example, uh, you know, not everyone is even able to physically set foot in court at all, right? If you Mm -hmm. are someone with a disability or a mobility challenge, someone with caretaker responsibilities or a job that doesn't allow you to leave uh, during the day to go to court, uh, it's very difficult to assert your legal rights because you might not be able to physically appear in court. So the, um, there's a solution to that, which is to allow something called remote appearances, to allow people to mm-hmm. show up via their webcam or their phone camera and appear in court even mm-hmm. though they don't set foot in court. All of those things are, relate to how we, um, how we lay out uh, physical data and technological infrastructure, pardon me, infrastructure of our courts, and the Illinois Supreme Court has a big role to play in that. Wow, thank you. I, I learn something new every time I talk to you. So, so thank you so much for that. So, how are the Illinois Supreme Court justices selected, and what are their terms of office? Yeah. So. Uh, the Illinois Supreme in in Illinois we elect our Supreme Court justices. You know when you think when mm-hmm. most people think of the Supreme Court they think of the U.S. Supreme Court. They think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg right. and Clarence Thomas and you know Sonia Sotomayor. Mm-hmm. Those people are appointed. They are nominated by the president and then confirmed by the Senate. In Illinois we do it differently. Mm-hmm. We elect our justices in the same way that we elect a lot of our other uh, legal officials or political officials and. So our state is divided into five judicial districts, and among those five judicial districts, we select a total of seven Supreme Court justices. You and I live in Cook County, which means that we're in the first Mm -hmm. judicial district, and the first judicial district is Mm -hmm. entitled to three justices on the Illinois Supreme Court. And uh, that means that uh, we get to elect, anyone from Cook County gets to elect one of those, uh, gets to elect those three justices of the Supreme Court. And uh, mm-hmm. then they serve 10-year terms, and at the end of each 10-year term, there's a retention vote, which means no one gets to run against the person. They just get to say, yes, I want to keep this person, or no, I want to get rid of this person. And if uh, less than 60% of people say, I want to keep this person, then they, they, get, uh, they, they lose their election. The reason that there's an election this cycle is because one of the individuals on the court retired. And so now there's an mm-hmm. open election with lots of different candidates running to fill that seat. Okay, great. Thanks. So why should nonprofit organizations even care about, you know, the Illinois Supreme Court? Yeah, great question. For a lot of different reasons. I mean, the, the for one, you know, whether we – there are a lot of nonprofits that are doing the work of justice themselves, right? There mm-hmm. are – there are nonprofits that are working to make sure that people get legal representation, that that legal representation is uh, thorough and fair. Um, there are people who are trying to address the collateral consequences of mass incarceration, of uh, you know, faulty DNA evidence, of corruption. Nonprofit organizations are a major part of our civic life, and in my opinion, justice is the most important thing that we do as a state. So if people who got into nonprofit work in the first place got into it because they care about 
how our most marginalized are being treated in our public institutions, then we should absolutely care about the Illinois Supreme Court because the Illinois Supreme Court is, like I said, the chief executive of our justice system. They write all the rules that dictate how this stuff pans out in a courtroom. Right? So whether there's bias, whether there's corruption, whether we suffer from, uh, you know, whether we have to put up with racist jury selection, uh, whether we have fair sentencing, all of this stuff that we kind of see the consequences of in our communities, uh, it really starts with rules in our courts, and the Illinois Supreme Court writes those rules. Yeah, and the interesting thing is it doesn't just impact, you know, what happens criminally, but, you know, folks who are working with youth, you know, particularly those who are in the court system and at risk, you know, they should be very keenly aware, I think, of what's going on. And, you know, folks who work with children, particularly those who might be, you know, tied up in what domestic court or they might be wards of the state. So I, I had no idea how far reaching this could be, you know, because typically I yeah. just think of expungement and those issues, but it, it's way more than that. Yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, our juvenile justice system is also overseen by the Illinois Supreme Court. So to the extent that we're, we care about um, uh, minors who could be embroiled in our criminal justice system, the Illinois Supreme Court is is a, a major player in that uh, in that system, but but also children are you know in some ways some of the most vulnerable to the collateral consequences of our criminal justice system, right? You know we have a right now we have a system of cash bail that says that even people who are uh, have been deemed safe to return to the community, who are presumed innocent, may linger in jail for years simply because they don't have enough cash to afford bail. Well, who pays the price for wow. that? In part, children do, families do, because their parent or their uh, their parent or caretaker may be, you know, locked up while even though they're safe to return to the community, even though they're presumed innocent. The Illinois Supreme Court has the power to change that system and to make sure that families aren't being torn apart based on it. Okay, great. So why are you running for Illinois Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, the... I got into it because of a case. You know, I was I was serving clients in the Supreme Court of the United States and uh, in courts across the country, and I finished a case in the Supreme Court and came home to defend an individual accused of attempt murder, and found out that mm-hmm. uh, the state was using a faulty DNA machine against him, and Ow. figured, you know, yeah, big problem, right? Uh, bad for my client, bad mm-hmm. for how many others, and I. But I thought, you know, we'll, it, it'll be okay because we're going to go to trial and I'll expose that problem. And they'll, you know, what actually ended, what actually was happening was the DNA analyst had failed to properly calibrate the machine. I said, okay, well, we'll bring that out at trial. They'll have to retrain the DNA analyst. They'll have to fix the machine. We'll make the world a better place one case at a time. And I did a little bit more research and I found out that in Illinois, our forensic labs are entitled to extra funds if they produce an analysis in a case if it ends in conviction. Wow. And I did a little bit more research, and I found out that in Illinois, our courts are entitled to extra funds if they convict. Right? Big problem. Big problem. Bad financial incentives. But I thought, you know, we'll go to trial, and I'll expose all that. <laughs> but ultimately, what ended up happening was we didn't get to trial because we, w- we went back into judges' chambers under something called Illinois Supreme Court Rule 402. That's one of those rules that the Illinois Supreme Court writes. And the, mm-hmm. in, a, in basically a preview of the trial, the judge said, you know, based on what you've told me, based on what I know about the case, if you went to trial and lost, 
your client would be sentenced to 70-something years. And then you walk out into the hall, and the prosecutor pulls you to the side and says, all right, you heard the man, 70-something years. But if you plead guilty, I'll ask for 20-something. So our client had to decide, do I risk dying in prison, fighting my case, or do I take the plea? And he took the plea. And that ended the case. Oh and what that means is we didn't get to expose the bad machine. We didn't get to talk about the systemic funding issues. All that information disappeared, right? And that's how 97.5% of felony convictions in Illinois are achieved. They're all guilty pleas. There's a ton of guilty pleas, and they're, we're losing information in all of those exchanges. And I realized if this were a civil case, if money were on the line, all of it would have made the record. Because in civil cases, under our rules, we get to take depositions and interrogatories. We have lots of discovery. But in criminal cases, when a human life is on the line, we don't get any of it. No, we're no. waiting for a trial that's destined to never happen. That's how people like John Burge are able to do what they did for 20-something years. Because you can't expose patterns of misconduct if nothing makes the record. And that's why I'm running, to make it so that we treat money at least as well as we – or we treat humans as least, at least as well as we treat money, to make it so that we're not vulnerable to pattern misconduct like the kind that John Burge committed or like the kind that we saw in that case where there was a, a, a faulty DNA machine, to make sure that we're, we're not vulnerable to those things, to reform the Illinois Supreme Court rules to protect ourselves and our communities and our families. All I can say is, wow, <laughs> it's worse than I it's worse than I thought. It's a it's a real problem, but I'll tell you what, uh, you know, I don't want you to feel condemned to this faith. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. What I'm trying to communicate mm-hmm. is that once we understand the ways in which our system is failing, we can fix it. It's really about understanding how, and mm-hmm. we can make these changes. The how is by reforming Illinois Supreme Court rules. So really, my message is that, one, there should be a sense of urgency. It's really important that we act now. But two, mm-hmm. we're empowered to do it through electing our judges. And that's, a, that's a, an optimistic thing. That's an empowering thing. I want people to leave feeling mm-hmm. like, hey, actually, even though there's a problem, even though I know that our justice system isn't working exactly how it should, we, we're not stuck in this, in this state. We can fix it. And we can. All right. So on that note, I just want to remind everyone that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, and we're speaking with Attorney Daniel Epstein, candidate for the Illinois Supreme Court. We'll be taking questions from our listening audience and chat room at about 2.30. The call-in number is 347-884-8121. Again, that number is 347 347- Eight eight four eight one two one, and you can also start chatting right now. You know, you can post in the chat room right now. It's live, and I will be sure to share any comments or questions that you might have on, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, on the air with our guests. So, Daniel, you mentioned on your website that inadequate understand, <clears throat> excuse me, understanding of math and science are leading to false verdicts. Would you care to elaborate? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we unfortunately allow, uh, have allowed pseudoscientists to, to take our witness stands and to testify against people uh, and help put them behind bars, um, even though the science that they're using is not scientifically valid. So, um, so 
let me give you uh, an example. Um, so there are two. Mm-hmm. Let me give it actually some background first, and then an example. There's two, basically two different kinds of witnesses. Um, one is called a percipient mm-hmm. witness. They saw, heard, smelled, touched. They perceived something related to the incident uh, at hand in the case. And then there's a second type mm-hmm. of witness called an expert witness. And expert witnesses didn't necessarily, they're not like eyewitnesses. They didn't see something related to the case. But they have a, a specialized knowledge or mm-hmm. expertise that they can use to help the court understand the evidence, to understand what's going on in the case, right? So mm-hmm. DNA analysts are typically expert uh, expert witnesses. They didn't see the crime or the alleged crime, but they can take evidence from that, uh, analyze it using a special, special technique, mm-hmm. and help the court understand what's going on. Okay. So, but then the question is, who gets to be an expert? Who qualifies as an expert? And unfortunately, in Illinois, we have a very low bar, and we've allowed people to qualify mm-hmm. as experts who really uh, don't help the court understand things. In fact, make it uh, drive us farther from the truth. For example, mm-hmm. uh, bite mark experts. Uh, bite mark experts are people who look at an injury on a body and determine whether it's made by it was made by human teeth, whether someone bit that person, and then if so. Um, whether the teeth of the suspect are consistent with the the injury on the body, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Those bite mark experts uh, were welcomed in our courts for years and years, helped put people behind bars for years and years, including people who I represented. And um, only now are we finding out, now that we're starting to do research on it, are we finding out that bite mark experts are able to accurately identify the teeth that made those injuries about 2% of the time. Right, they're accurate about two wow. percent of the time in best case scenarios. Right, but nevertheless, they were welcomed on our witness stands. The reason that they were welcomed on our witness stands is because we have uh, Illinois Rule of Evidence 702, which simply says mm-hmm. you can qualify as an expert so long as you use you use a technique that is quote generally accepted in your field. Um, which doesn't seem so bad, except that tarot card readers use techniques that are generally accepted in their field. Right, they're, that's a, it's actually a pretty low okay. bar. Uh, we wouldn't want tarot card readers to be determining guilt or innocence in our courts or helping helping our courts understand issues. Uh, we can do better than that. The, at the federal level, the requirement is that they show that they're using a technique that's reliable. Right? That's a better question. We can take that standard and import it into our own and protect ourselves against quacks uh, from helping to convict, falsely convict people. And I can tell you, it's it's not just bite marks. Also, I mean, there's like non-DNA hair analysis is a, is a huge one. Uh, like in 2015. Mm-hmm. The FBI reported that it had reviewed 268 cases where its examiners provided testimony uh, used to, to help convict a defendant at trial, and that erroneous statements were made in 96% of those cases. Um, in at least wow. 35 of those cases, uh, the defendant received the death penalty. Um, and of those 35, 33 uh, had errors, right? So 94% of the cases, the death penalty cases, in which uh, hair analysis was used that they identified uh, contained errors, and that was only a small sample of the of the total cases that they looked that they were going to look at. They had thousands of cases left to review, so the the error rate for these um, spurious types of of uh, expert expert testimony um, is extraordinarily high. So much so that we should really figure out ways to not allow it in our courts because it's driving us farther from the truth and it's imprisoning people who don't deserve to be imprisoned. 
So and, I was and reading just to, the just to put a bow oh, okay. on that, mm-hmm. that the Illinois Supreme Court mm-hmm. writes that rule, right, and has the power to reform it. It's the Illinois Supreme mm-hmm. Court who can do that. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. So I was reading your platform, and one thing that you would like to do is eliminate corruption and apparent conflicts of interest in the Illinois court system. And you mentioned that, quote, in Illinois trial courts, when a party seeks to substitute a judge for cause, a disinterested judge, and that is someone who doesn't have a horse in the race, right, determines whether the judge with the alleged issue can be impartial. But in our courts of review, justices with alleged conflicts decide for themselves whether to recuse. This is like letting pitchers call their own balls and strikes. So how would you go about eliminating these conflicts? Yeah, yeah. So I would I would do that by creating an independent body to determine conflicts of interest and recusals. So right now, as you mentioned, in the appellate and Supreme Courts, um, we we just rely on the honor system to stop justices from deciding cases for their campaign donors or other individuals with whom they have relationships. Uh, we are truly relying on the honor system and, and nothing more. That's a big, big problem. We need to be putting in structural mm-hmm. assurances that people, that justices aren't deciding cases when they have conflicts of interest. And so we can do that by creating an independent body that um, that determines conflicts of interest and recusals instead of relying on the people with the alleged conflicts themselves. Right? When I was when I was an attorney at Jenner and Block, if I wanted to take in a new client, I had to go through a conflicts mm-hmm. department. Right? There were separate people who determined whether there was a conflict of interest or not, because obviously you can't trust the person who has something to gain to determine whether they have a conflict of interest, because that would be a conflict of interest. But in our appellate and Supreme mm-hmm. Court, that's exactly how it works. And this is played out in real life. Uh, this is not just a hypothetical problem. Wow. Um, we've had we've had serious uh, instances where justices have um, been alleged to have taken very large campaign donations and then decided cases in which those campaign donors were parties in the case. Right? This is a this is a real issue that we mm-hmm. face and that we can improve. Wow, I, I just find that so ironic. You know, I've never been to law school, but I understand that ethics is a huge part of the study of law. Is is that true? That's right. It's a it's a it is an entire field of study. It's it is critical. Um, that's exactly right. And and yet we have this system that could be significantly improved to remove the conflicts of interest. That's exactly right. I mean, it's it is low hanging fruit. This is something that we can fix. Uh, we just haven't done it yet. Mhm. Okay. And the Illinois Judicial Conference, which is comprised of members of the Supreme Court as well as other key court stakeholders across the state, they just finished developing their strategic agenda. And one of the issues they identified was the growing numbers of people who are, in fact, representing themselves in court rather than hiring attorneys. In fact, more than half the litigants are representing themselves. And you know what they say, if you represent yourself, 
as <laughs> he who represents himself as a fool for an attorney. And, That's right. Yeah, and this isn't to this isn't to cast aspersion on people, but you know, I'm just trying to give people a sense for you know what the consequences are. Um, people who represent themselves in court, they're not well versed in the law or court procedures which puts them at a very serious disadvantage if they're facing someone who's an, who has an attorney. And on top of that, the judges have expressed that presiding over cases where people represent themselves takes longer and is more difficult, and that only adds to any backlogs in the court. So what are some of the ways that you would propose that we address the issue such that individuals have access to justice while the courts can still operate efficiently? Yeah, great question. So so there's a, a few different ways. I mean, one is by, you know, mitigating the conditions uh, require that, that make it such that, that we have lots of uh, people representing them pro se in the first place. So, um, mm-hmm. so a, a big part of our, of our, uh, Unrepresented uh, appeals are um, are uh, Brady claims, and Brady claims are where mm-hmm. um, uh, people say the prosecution had uh, evidence um, had evidence that uh, would have helped my case, but they didn't turn it over, um, and uh, that's a that's a major problem that represents a lot of a lot of appeals. And um, mm-hmm. and one of the ways that we can address that is by moving to what's called an open file system. See, currently we have to trust prosecutors to turn over evidence that is both material and exculpatory, um, and mm-hmm. meaning significant and uh, and tends to uh, help the defendant. Um, but uh, the problem with that is that you're relying on um, on prosecutors to turn over evidence that hurts their own case. So you're relying on them to act against their own self-interest. And mm-hmm. uh, that's a problem because, you know, we're humans and and uh, people don't always turn over everything that they should or they don't see things with clear eyes as a result. And also because prosecutors don't necessarily, they're not always able to tell what is material and exculpatory on their own. So other mm-hmm. jurisdictions have made changes to this uh, to move to that this thing called an open file framework, where what you say is everything that is available to the prosecution is automatically available to the defense. You don't have to re- wait and hope that the prosecution uh, turns over the evidence um, that it will be available to them. So part of that is just uh, reducing the need for uh, for appeals um, so that uh, so that resources can be focused. Um, uh, in better ways. Uh, mm-hmm. Part of that also is um, is just a resources issue. Uh, I mean, and that and that's not always uh, well. There's 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 two parts. I'll get to the resource part part after this. The other thing is making mm-hmm. uh, making attorneys more affordable. Right. So this is a problem not just for uh, people who are totally unrepresented, but for people who are uh, underrepresented or or hire a lawyer but can't necessarily afford for them to put forth the representation that they would hope for. And one of the reasons that that happens is because um, attorneys are really expensive. They're really expensive. Mm-hmm. In, in many instances, they bill by the hour, and they spend a mm-hmm. lot of hours. And some of those hours are spent 
waiting in courtrooms, hoping that a judge will call your case on time. Some of them are spent traveling to and from the courtroom. And those are things that, uh, or, or helping to, and, and not just lawyers, but uh, witnesses, sometimes you have to, to pay to, for transportation and, and things like that. So those are things that we can, we can start to get at by um, implementing technology that would allow for remote appearances. So rather than saying, uh, paying for an attorney to, for the time that they're driving to the courthouse, you, they can just appear via their webcam or their phone and that way we're cutting mm-hmm. down the number of hours that attorneys have to spend uh, spend on this stuff. Um, so making, making uh, lawyers more affordable, making representation more affordable. Uh, additionally, um, we can expand access to pro bono representation by providing pro bono uh, credit or CLE credit for pro bono mm-hmm. uh, representation. Um, there's, there's limits to how far that can go, but, but that's a good start. But then uh, the last thing is, look, our courts uh, shouldn't necessarily be carrying the water for a legislature that refuses to, to properly fund our justice system. And so part of it mm-hmm. is saying, look, we're going to do justice at the pace that it requires, and we need the legislature to step up and fund us appropriately. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. All right, I want to remind you once more that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast. We're speaking with Attorney Daniel Epstein, candidate for the Illinois Supreme Court. We're talking about why nonprofits should care about the Illinois Supreme Court. And, in fact, we as citizens should all care about what goes on in the Illinois Supreme Court. We'll be taking questions from our listening audience and chat room at about 2.30 Central Time, and actually it's 2.33, so we'll be taking questions very shortly. The call-in number is 347-884-8121, so please, you're welcome to call in right now. If you want to post in the chat room, you can do so. And Daniel, I see that we have one caller. This caller has been here since the start, so I'm not sure if the caller wants to ask a question or not, um, some people just call in to hear better, and I'm going to make the caller's mic live. Caller, you're at area code 773-542-9900. I'm going to make your mic live. It's live now. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to share, please do so now. Okay, it it doesn't seem that the caller has any questions or comments. So we're going to move on, Daniel. Um, in 2013, the Illinois Bar Association wrote a report on the funding crisis of the Illinois court. They found that the court's budgets have been disproportionately cut relative to the other branches of government, the budgeting has been inconsistent, and that inflation combined with budget cuts accounted for a 22% funding decrease over the previous 10 years. And I can only imagine that that situation hasn't improved very much, especially given um, the last, you know, the dynamics of the last um, governor. 
So looking at the strategic agenda for 2019 to 2022, the Illinois court system has made funding a priority. So what are some of the ways that you suggest that the courts can maintain adequate funding? And I know you started down that path before the break. Yeah, so so exactly uh, what I just said, which is, look, we need to demand uh, resources at the level needed to um, to exact justice, to do justice the right way. You know, justice is the most important thing mm-hmm. that we do as a state, and our courts have really bent over backwards uh, and contorted themselves in an effort to conserve resources, to do what they can with what they have. And that's resulted in massive, massive costs um, for the taxpayer. So, for example, uh, you know, one of the, the main ways that courts will try and conserve resources is by um, by pushing for guilty pleas, right? That, oh, that story wow. that I told you before is where they say, you know, uh, well, if you, if you, uh, if you go to, to trial and lose, I think an appropriate sentence would be 70 something years. You know, that happens, uh, with the knowledge that the prosecutor is, I, I think it happens with the knowledge that the prosecutor is, um, is then going to follow up and say, uh, but if you plead guilty, I'll ask for something much less because that happens time and time and time again, okay? That covers mm-hmm. up, that, that, that use of guilty pleas uh, that makes it so that we don't go to trial very much, combined with the fact that we don't have much in the way of criminal discovery, covers up repeating, repeated abuses, covers up civil rights violations. But it can only cover it up for so long, because decades down the road, Ultimately, it gets uncovered and turns into massive civil mm-hmm. rights claims, right? So those, uh, mm-hmm. those civil rights claims end up paying hundreds of millions of dollars, if not more, uh, out of you know, public monies to victims of civil rights abuses and to the attorneys who represent them and to the attorneys who represent uh, cities and states. So you know, there was an article not that long ago uh, that said that Chicago paid $213 million just to the private attorneys who defended the city oh. against civil rights claims for, for things like police misconduct, right? Matt, that, that's not even to the victims. That's just to the, to the attorneys defending the city, right? Could you imagine if we could have reinvested mm-hmm. that money into other things, right? So we're paying the cost. We're, we're basically, we're cutting corners in our, in our court system. We're cutting corners. We're not doing mm-hmm. much discovery. We're pushing for guilty pleas. We're cutting corners to cut costs. But it's one of the most expensive things we've ever done. In terms of dollars, when these things turn in, turn into expensive civil rights claims, in terms of liberty, mm-hmm. when innocent people go to prison, and in terms of injustice to oppressed communities, so we need to stop cutting corners. We need to go at the speed that justice requires, and in the meantime, you know, we can save the state a lot of money by doing things like ending cash bail. You know, cash bail mm-hmm. is a system that holds people in jail. Uh, even though they've been deemed safe to return to the community, even though they're presumed innocent, if they don't have enough cash to afford the bail. And we pay huge amounts incarcerating people for years and years and years while they await trial simply because they do not have enough cash to afford bail. We can save a lot of money switching to, uh, to different mechanisms that other jurisdictions have already implemented with great success. But we can't get there by cutting corners. 
Wow. So what is it that we as citizens or we who work for nonprofits can do to advocate for better funding for, for our court system? Yeah, so with respect to funding, uh, I think the number one thing you can do is uh, talk to legislators, right? Funding, funding mm-hmm. is largely an issue dictated by our legislature um, and our governor. And so the number one thing is advocating uh, for extra funding for our court system. Um, the number two thing is, you know, depending on where you, what kind of a nonprofit you are, but if you're kind of interested in criminal justice reform, uh, you might, um, you know, ask your prosecutor to be uh, have use their discretion wisely in in deciding what crimes are worth prosecuting and which ones aren't. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if, if we start prosecuting every jaywalker, uh, it's going to be very expensive and make it very difficult to uh, to manage the system. So you might want to say, "Hey, I want uh, a prosecutor or police uh, police chief that doesn't arrest." and doesn't prosecute uh, jaywalkers, for example. And so um, determining which which uh, offenses are prosecuted in the first place bears very closely on resources, determining uh, who your legislators are and what their commitment to funding uh, justice is is also incredibly important. But, uh, but at the end of the day, um, I think the most important thing that you can do is make sure that the judges you select uh, share your values and um, will only go at the pace that justice requires. Okay, great. Uh, we have another caller. Um, I'm going to make your mic live. Um, caller, your number is 773-766-4448. And um, if you have any questions or comments, can you please share them with Daniel Epstein? Okay, you're live Good afternoon, now. Valerie. This is Leslie Page Piper. Uh, Daniel, thank hey, you Leslie. so much for what you're presenting here. Uh, your innovative ideas about this, Daniel, really will give us hope, and we really can be more proactive in terms of it, actually assisting you with this. I'd like to see you get over there on the Supreme Court. Really, really, I would like to see that um, because you're looking at things in a different lens, which we're needed now to look at it in terms of that. And any support um, that you might like, uh, even a person like me, I'm just a community economic development person in, in, in uh, urban planning, but still realize that this is all a part of what we need to do here. So understand that I, you have my support. Okay, and Valerie, thank you so much for bringing him forth here. Uh, and we hopefully will like get in contact later on, Daniel, uh, to assist you with this process because what you're saying is very important. And to be proactive is that what you are exhibiting here is what's needed to be done. So thank you for being here, Daniel. Thank you so much, Leslie. That's, uh, I, I, that really just means a heck of a lot to me, and um, and I absolutely want to take you up on that offer uh, to help. And uh, and I just sent you a, a, a request to connect on LinkedIn. So so already uh, <laughs> maybe we can get in, in touch after. But but I do want to say thank you so much. That really means a heck of a lot to me. And um, you know the way that we can get it done is by. Uh, by connecting and organizing and uh, and starting to expect and demand more of our justice system and our and our judges. So, uh, if you're willing to link arms with me, then uh, then I think we can be we can do something really important and powerful. Okay, great. So um, I'm going to give you another opportunity at the end of the podcast. But since Leslie asked 
for information as to how she can get in contact with you. If you can share, Daniel, with our listening audience how they can get in contact with you. Yeah, so the the, the fastest way is to go to EpsteinForSupremeCourt.com and and depending on how you want to get in contact, you can if you want to get in contact in order to volunteer, then the best way is to click on the volunteer tab and fill out the information. Uh, and we can make sure that we're getting in contact with you the best way that uh, that we can. So if you want to do things like um, you know help with social media, that's a box you can check. If you want to help knock on doors, that's a box you can check. If you just want to talk, you can also reach out to me at uh, my email address is Daniel at Epstein for Supreme Court dot com. That's D A N I E L at Epstein E P S T E I N for Supreme Court dot com. Uh, and uh, however you want to get in contact is is great. So, uh, but EpsteinForSupremeCourt.com, you can sign up on the volunteer tab. Daniel at EpsteinForSupremeCourt.com, you can send me an email. Uh, you can also reach us on Facebook at Epstein for Supreme Court. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at DanielEpstein85, on Twitter at EpsteinD, or on LinkedIn. I don't know if I have a handle on LinkedIn, but if you look me up, I'm the one who's an Illinois Supreme Court candidate. Okay, thank you so much for that. The Illinois Judicial Conference also included a strategy of diversity and inclusion in their strategic agenda under the goals for professional accountability. I, for one, would like to see diversity, equity, and inclusion for the court system as a core value, and this would permeate throughout everything the courts do, from hiring, court procedures, and the like. So how would you convince the Illinois Supreme Court, as well as the Illinois Judicial Conference, that DEI should be a core value, and then how would you make sure it's implemented throughout the entire system in everything the court does? Yeah, so, you know, I think one of the big ways is by highlighting the areas that I think have really not gotten enough attention. Uh, You know, we talk a lot about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and sometimes we talk about it on the bench, and that's really, really important. Sometimes we talk about it on mm-hmm. the bar. That's really, really important. But you know where we haven't talked about it much is in the jury box. That's a mm. critical area. Having diverse juries is extraordinarily important. It goes to the core of whether we have juries of peers, right? And right now, we're vulnerable to racist jury selection because the tools that are in our rules, in our Illinois Supreme Court rules, are are pretty weak Mm -hmm. to prevent uh, racist jury selection. What ends up happening is we have uh, a jury pool with people of uh, of different races, national origins, sexes, um, all kinds of different uh, uh, aspects of diversity. But um, in some places and in some instances, what we've seen is that uh, lawyers will go through a process of call, called uh, jury selection or juror, juror exclusion, where they will then try and get the mm-hmm. most racially homogenous jury that they possibly can, or the most sexually homogenous jury wow. that they possibly can, or a number of different things. They're looking for homogeneity, uh, not anti-diversity, right? And and just to give you kind of an example, it, it's it's illegal to, um, or it's unconstitutional to exclude a, a potential juror based on race. You're not allowed to do it. But attorneys have been mm-hmm. able to do it because the tools to challenge it are weak. And so 
what we need to do is strengthen those tools. And one of the things that I've recommended is experimenting with things like not allowing uh, attorneys to physically see potential jurors, right? You can still ask them mm -hmm. questions, just like a normal jury selection process. You can still learn things about them. Maybe you'd even be able to divine things about race or national origin based on voice or zip code or what have you, but you wouldn't be able to actually see them. And there's actually some precedent mm -hmm. for doing this. Uh, for doing this, and I want to see if we can we can use this successfully. But but we need to start thinking holistically about diversity everywhere in our court system, uh, including including jury uh, jury boxes. I think maybe most importantly, but uh, but also we need to seed the pipeline. So we need to make sure in or, you know in order to have a diverse uh, set of judges, it helps to have um, diverse set of lawyers. And there are a couple mm -hmm. ways that we can do that. One of the ways that we can do it, even without uh, asking other um, other uh, Supreme Court justices for help, is I can do something called using rotating clerks. In the Illinois Supreme Court, most of the judges use career clerks, meaning they have people who are helping them do their job, and those people stay with them year after year after year. Um, that makes uh, the job a little bit easier for the judges, but it misses an opportunity mm -hmm. to develop talent and uh, develop diverse talent uh, in our in our court system and on the bar. At the federal level, uh, most federal judges use rotating clerks, where they bring in a, a young attorney for a year or two so that they can help them with their job, but also so that that young attorney can be trained up and their qualifications can be improved so that one day they might be able to be a judge themselves. I think that's mm -hmm. a better model if we want to seed the pipeline of diverse attorneys who might one day become partners or judges or what have you. So without even needing to get permission from any other uh, Supreme Court justices, I can make that change in my own office. That's one. Mm -hmm. The other thing is we can change, we can make a very small change to something called the character and fitness assessment um, to, to help get more people, uh, a, a, a more diverse array of people applying to law school in the first place and becoming lawyers. The character and fitness assessment is like the last hurdle that you need to surmount in order to become uh, an attorney in Illinois. And it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty opaque process. You don't get to see how that decision is made in many cases, but they're going to look at everything mm -hmm. from your history, all of your disciplinary history, all of your arrests and convictions from your entire life, and they're going to consider whether that um, – prohibits you from becoming an attorney. The big problem with that is that it is the last hurdle, which means you've already taken on a mountain of debt in law school. You've already taken the bar. You've already gone through all these hoops, and yet you might not be able yeah. to become an attorney, and you might not have a way to repay that debt. That's a problem because someone who has a, an arrest or a conviction or a suspension or some kind of mark on their disciplinary record looking forward before they take on that debt may say, I'm not going to risk it. And what we know is that in communities of color, uh, uh, disciplinary school discipline is more harsh and more common. Arrests and convictions are more harsh and more common. And so there's a reason to be concerned that um, people in communities of color may be less willing to even attempt to become lawyers in the first place because it's less clear that they'd be able to repay that debt after taking it. We can fix that by moving the character and fitness assessment before that debt is taken as a preliminary mm -hmm. assessment so that people can know whether something in their in their disciplinary record is going to prevent them from becoming an attorney. That's a small tweak. I don't think that it'll be difficult to convince uh, other justices to go along with that. Mm -hmm.
question for you, Daniel. We only have about nine minutes left. I have a few more questions, and um, at the rate we're going, we could very well go beyond 3 o'clock. Do you have a little bit of time to, to go a little bit over I'd beyond be 3 to. o'clock? I'd or be happy you... Okay, awesome. Any yeah, opportunity to spend I with you, just... Valerie, I'm going to take it up. <laughs> okay, I'm just enthralled. I, I have learned so much. and, and you, you just don't know. I, I, I've learned so much about the way our courts work and had no idea of the implications of the Supreme Court and some some of the just administrative details and, and how yeah. that impacts our everyday lives. Yeah, it's it's kind of so, hidden. It's not a secret, mm-hmm. but it's hidden. And so it, our job is to expose mm-hmm. it and then fix it. Yeah, we're not attorneys. Those of us who are not attorneys, we have no idea how these hidden hands are impacting our lives every day. Mm-hmm. So what exactly is restorative justice? Great question. Yeah, so <clears throat> restorative justice practices uh, are um, kind of a different model of justice. It's not your typical courtroom where it's one side versus the other with a judge standing in between. Um, they use these things called peace circles. And what happens mm-hmm. is uh, after after an alleged offense, uh, an an alleged offense is occur has occurred. You'll get together the um, victim of that offense, mm-hmm. the members of the community who have been impacted by it, the offender, the alleged offender, and also a circle keeper who kind of manages a process by which the offender will talk about what they did. Um, the victim will talk about how it impacted them. The community members will talk about how mm-hmm. it impacted them. And then together, they'll develop a plan for restoration, first and foremost, to restore the victim, to make sure that they're recovered from whatever injury they suffered, second, to restore the community, and third, to restore the offender, so that by the end, uh, there's a, a fuller sense of restoration where the the people involved, both victim, community, and offender, have all been involved in, in not just the original incident, but also the repair of it. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the basic idea of restorative justice practices. Um, and, and that's to contrast it with our traditional method where victims in many cases are kind of sidelined, right? In a criminal case, it's not mm-hmm. victim versus offender. It's actually the state versus the offender. And sometimes oh, victims okay. feel like they've been kind of sidelined in that process. They don't have a voice um, and, and they, don't have to, they don't get a chance to sometimes be, uh, get restitution or to, be, um, to get damages unless they bring their own case in civil court. And so restorative justice mm-hmm. is, is something that takes victims off the sidelines and gets them involved in the process of restoration. Um, actually, interestingly, the Illinois Supreme Court has a big role to play in that. They um, mm-hmm. uh, most recently... Uh, they actually rejected a rule that would have allowed restorative justice community courts to flourish. Um, so, as I mentioned, restorative justice peace circles require speaking, right? And they function mm-hmm. based on openness and forthcomingness, and they require offenders to talk about what they are alleged to have done. That um, presents a risk to the offender or the alleged offender because uh, when they speak, the words that they speak may be used against them uh, in another context, right? You know, that, that old mm-hmm. saying, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Well, right, when, they right. speak, 
Yeah, when they speak, those words could be used against them. And that's a deterrent to speaking openly, which is a, which is, uh, a problem for restorative justice courts that require open communication. So a number mm-hmm. of different groups, including a number of faith groups, um, presented a, a, uh, a rule change, a proposed rule change to the Illinois Supreme Court saying, we want those communications to be privileged. In other words, anything that they say cannot be used against them in a court. And the Illinois mm-hmm. Supreme Court rejected that rule without explanation. Wow. So the problem is then that I'm concerned that at some point someone will say something that will then be used against them, and after mm-hmm. which lawyers will tell their clients, don't take part in these restorative justice courts. It's a trap. Or be careful what you say. It's a trap. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that is really against the spirit uh, of the restorative justice courts and against what makes them most effective. And so uh, mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that we can revisit that rule. Yeah, is there some way to to change the rules such that, you know, even if they do reject, you know, such such a proposal that they're required, they meaning the Supreme Court justices are required to say why they made the decision? You know, that, that doesn't exist yet, but that's a great idea. I haven't thought about that, but, you know, you might have just added something to my platform. <laughs> yeah, just why? You, you know, all in yeah. the spirit of transparency. You know, transparency is not just what you do, but how you do it and, and why you do it. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And it's fr- it's it's uh, it's frustrating, isn't it? Right when you you get a team mm-hmm. together and you try and make a change, and then it it feels like it kind of gets dismissed out of hand without even getting proper consideration, or you can't tell whether it got proper consideration, or you can't tell whether a decision was made based on bad information that you might be able to fix. So, no, I'm with you. I think uh, I think explanations are really important. Actually, it's funny you mentioned that. I don't know if you know this, but in Illinois, judges don't even have to provide explanations for their sentences, right? So they just say guilty 25 wow. years next case. They don't have to explain how they got 25 years. And that's a big, big problem because um, judges make uh, mistakes in sentencing all the time. It's an error-prone process. And if they don't explain how they got the answer that they did, how they arrived at the sentence they did, it's effectively impossible for the person who was sentenced to get that fixed on appeal, right? Because, like you said, it doesn't just matter. uh, It's not just about doing a process. It's about how you do that process. And um, the legislature actually tried to fix that. Years ago, they passed a law saying that judges have to explain the reasons behind their sentences when they sentence someone to a felony. And the Illinois Supreme Court Mm -hmm. rejected that, too. They said that the law was invalid, that it was a breach of separation of powers, and that uh, the legislature can't fix this. Only they could fix this. And then they didn't fix it. So wow. many of the things that I'm talking about are things that the Illinois Supreme Court can fix. And not only that, they are the mm-hmm. only ones who can do it. And so it's so, so important that we really pay attention to who uh, who we elect to the Illinois Supreme Court and make sure that they share our values and that they have mm-hmm. a plan for making the system better. Yeah. That, can there be a change to the Constitution to ensure a better balance between the branches of government? Yeah. Um, it, it, there's, a, there's a mechanism to amend the Constitution, and, uh, and there's quite a, a lot of um, a flexibility in what, that, what the Constitution would look like uh, after an amendment or a constitutional yeah, a convention. A lot of work. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of work. A lot, a lot of work. work. They only, <laughs> that only happens, what, every 10 years or so? Oh, even rarer, I think. I think it's pretty rare. Pretty rare. Wow. 
Yeah. The uh, our current constitution, we had a, uh, a constitutional convention in uh, 1969 and 1970, and that's our current constitution is from that era, and even that is fairly recent wow. by, uh, in comparison to other uh, other states in the federal constitution. Amazing, amazing. So, tell us about your work in restorative justice. Yeah, so, you know, my work has really been through the Lawndale Christian Legal Center um, and in mm-hmm. supporting the Lawndale Christian Legal Center. I'm on the, the Young Professional Council for the Lawndale Christian Legal Center uh, and worked with mm-hmm. their, their mock trial team, I'm proud to say. Um, but awesome. uh, mostly what I do is, is just try and support them. Uh, and the Lawndale Christian Legal Center is uh, a leader of something called the Restorative Justice Hub. Uh, and that's a series of community organizations that come together to um, – help be a part of those plans for restoration that the restorative justice community court works on. And um, uh, so my job is to support them so that they can support the court, so that the court can support um, people who have, who would otherwise be embroiled in our criminal justice system. Okay. And I know every lo- locale is different, but just generally speaking, how can community organizations get involved in restorative justice work? you know, in their local areas? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Chief Judge Evans, um, Cook County Chief Judge Evans, I think, is really interested in taking uh, the model that we have in North Lawndale's uh, community, sort of justice community court, and expanding it outward. Mm -hmm. And so I would encourage people uh, who are interested in, in restorative justice to reach out to the Restorative Justice Hub, to reach out to the Lawndale Christian Legal Center, and to reach out to Chief Judge Timothy Evans to um, to see if there might be opportunities to really expand this work out to other communities, because right now it's only North Lawndale, um, and uh, and we can we can expand it out much much farther, and, and I'm hopeful that we will. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of that's the that's kind of the formal court. Uh, there are a number of kind of informal courts for just. Um, uh, when community members of the community uh, have disputes and people, they don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to use the state's legal system. They just want to develop a solution for themselves. And uh, there's some organizations that um, that I think do that work too. Although I'm blanking on the name now, but um, mm-hmm. but uh, but I'd I'd recommend starting by reaching out to Lawndale Christian Legal Center and Chief Judge Timothy Evans. Okay, great, great. So I want to remind our listening audience that you're listening to the Nonprofit Utopia podcast, and we're speaking with Attorney Daniel Epstein, candidate for the Illinois Supreme Court. We'll be taking questions right now. You know, if you have them, um, the call-in number is 347-884-8121. You can also post in our chat room if you have any questions. So I... I know, Daniel, that you touched on this a little bit, but just go into a little bit more detail. What exactly is a community court? Yeah, so, for example, the Restorative Justice Community Court in North Lawndale only serves people in North Lawndale. So if if you're 26 and under, uh, you've committed, you're alleged to have committed a nonviolent offense, you may be eligible to uh, go to the Restorative Justice Community Court, which only serves people from North Lawndale. Um, If you're outside of North Lawndale and you're in a different community, then you are not eligible. And so there are courts that Mm -hmm. that are linked linked to specific communities. Mm -hmm. 
I got you. So if you're in Cook County, if you're interested in starting a community court in your area, you would start with the chief judge's office or somewhere within the, the circuit court? I think that's right. I think uh, I would reach out to the, the chief judge's office. And, um, you know, uh, there's um, – Gosh, there's a church that does trainings for for circle keepers too, and uh, and I'm I'm blanking on the name. It'll come to me in a moment, and I'll uh, mm-hmm. I'll uh, I'll remember it then. But um, but one thing you can do is train circle keepers, and then the second thing you can do is mm-hmm. if you want to become part of that formal court and make that for your own community, uh, I think part of that process is is just getting started now. And so I would reach out to uh, Chief Judge Evans' office. Okay, all right, great. So one of the greatest barriers to employment for formerly incarcerated persons is a prison record, and I think that's pretty common knowledge. One strategy is to expunge and seal records for those who qualify. Unfortunately, there's a backlog in the courts, and on top of that, many ex-offenders can't afford an attorney and find it difficult to navigate the system even though the courts have provided resources for them to represent themselves in the process. In fact, there are a number of resources on the various courts' websites throughout the state. So what recommendations do you have for expediting the expungement process so that qualifying ex-offenders can get quicker access to employment and thereby reduce recidivism, hopefully, over time? Yeah. <clears throat> so for, for the folks who may be in that situation or know someone in that situation, um, I, I'd recommend two things. The, the first is um, there's a, an outstanding organization called uh, Cabrini Green Legal Aid, CGLA, and Cabrini Green Legal Aid uh, does outstanding work in helping people with expungements. Um, mm-hmm. So I would reach out to CGLA, to Cabrini Green Legal Aid. Uh, additionally, um, and this is not just for people uh, interested in expungements, but for people interested in getting legal representation of all sorts, but don't necessarily know where to look, mm-hmm. you can go to mm-hmm. um, the Chicago Bar Association's website. It's called chicagobar.org, and uh, click mm-hmm. on Find Legal Help. And there's a hotline that you can call and ask for um, help finding a lawyer. Uh, even if you don't have any resources, you can ask for help finding a pro bono lawyer. And uh, they don't guarantee that they can help you find one, but they guarantee that they'll uh, they'll let you know one way or another. Um, and I know folks who have had uh, had success in that regard. So if you're in that situation, reach out to Cabrini Green Legal Aid. Reach out to the Chicago Bar Association. They're there to help. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of uh, making uh, expediting the expungement process, um, you know, a, a big part of that is legislative. And um, mm-hmm. un- unfortunately, there's. Uh, that not that I know of yet, although if, if folks know differently and have suggestions, I'm happy to make that part of the platform. But as of right now, I, I'm not so sure that there's a heck of a lot that courts can do um, to expedite the expungement process. My understanding is that a lot of the, the slowness is really about um, uh, is really based in, in legislative reform that, that the courts um, the courts aren't necessarily able to to impact. Okay, and final question, Daniel. What are some of the lessons that you've learned in doing this work? Yeah, um, you know, to, to not assume that that um, that rules exist 
because they're justified. To not assume mm-hmm. that people have power because they deserve it. To really take important and close and careful looks at uh, at the rules that dictate how our courts operate. To kind of read the VCR manual that is our our court system, the rules underpinning our court system, mm-hmm. and to really um, question all the time: Is there a better way of doing this? And to be mindful as as you kind of go out into the world and um, and pra- for me, it was practicing law in multiple jurisdictions. You know, I'll, I'll practice uh, in multiple jurisdictions in multiple contexts, and note that, you know, certain you know in certain states they have better rules than we do, right? In Florida, Indiana, mm-hmm. and Iowa, they have depositions in cr- criminal cases that we don't have in Illinois. In civil mm-hmm. cases, when money is on the line, you get depositions, and you don't get that in criminal cases here in Illinois. In our trial courts, you get a disinterested judge determining conflicts of interest, but not in our appellate and supreme courts. Right, so you look at kind of differences in different contexts, differences in different jurisdictions, and then ask, why is it not this way in in the place where I'm seeing problems? Um, that's mm-hmm. a really important lesson that I've learned. Um, and then just to be vocal, you know, if you see mm-hmm. something wrong, you know, step out of line and say something about it because, you know. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I got into this, we've talked a lot about ideas today. Um, mm-hmm. But all of the ideas that I've talked about are anchored in people I know, people I represented, um, families mm-hmm. who were in some cases devastated by some of the problems that could be solved through adopting these ideas. There's humanity in the law that we need to find. And and so I think it's really important to remember that even though we may be talking about abstractions or ideas or rules, that there are people, families, communities that are at stake uh, when we talk about those things and that there's an intense sense of urgency. And so if you see something wrong with an idea, don't assume that it's just an abstract problem. It is a human problem, mm-hmm. and it requires people to step out of line and step up and try and fix these problems rather than staying up and saying, you know what, I think someone else in power might be able to might be able to fix it. It's it's up to us. Mm-hmm. From your experience, is it easier said than done, or is it easier than we think it is because of our assumptions to to make those changes? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that. Um, that's a tough question because uh, for a number of different reasons. W- one is that a lot mm-hmm. of the things that I'm talking about, uh, I think are most folks haven't necessarily thought about before, right? As I'm going across mm-hmm. the county and talking to people, I think they say, you know, I always knew there was something wrong, but I didn't know that's what it was. And so um, mm-hmm. the biggest hurdle is just education and just letting people know that this is the stuff that's that's going wrong and, um and that and that there's a way to fix it now that we know now that we have to now that we know we have to take a second step and actually build this movement um and say you know tell your neighbor tell your friend tell your family tell your community that that actually there are ways that we can fix uh aspects of these just the justice system that's hurting us and i don't you know i don't know how whether you know i don't know how difficult it's going to be i know that w- i know what's required to fix it which is we need to get mm-hmm. uh, the community involved to say we want we want more from our courts, we want more from our judges, mm-hmm. um, and we need to get judges who share our values on the court. I, I don't know. Once we get there, you know, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to make the change, and um, and I'm optimistic for 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 a couple of reasons. One, there's there's a mm-hmm. 
there's a great British poet who said this kind of better than I can. He, he's a guy named G.K. Chesterton, and he said, the terrible thing about all legal officials is all lawyers, all police, all judges, all detectives, is not that they're wicked. Many of them are good. It's not that they're unintelligent. Several of them are quite clever. It's simply that they've gotten used to it. They no longer see the prisoner in the dock. They just see the usual man in the usual place. And I take that to mean that um, the problems that, that I'm talking about fixing don't exist because people are wicked or unintelligent. It's just that we need fresh mm -hmm. eyes on the court to fix it. And I'm hoping to be those fresh mm -hmm. eyes. Awesome. So it sounds like we need more intentionality. And, and they may not even be aware, you know, you know given that there's, there seems to be so many issues that come before them, this is probably not the first thing that comes <laughs> comes to mind. You know, some of the things that we talked talked about, there may be larger fish to fry in their estimation. Yeah, it's, it, that, that could be. That very well could be. All right. So we've come to the end of our show, and Daniel, I'd like to thank you so much for being a guest. So this is Attorney Daniel Epstein. He's the candidate for the Illinois Supreme Court. So, Daniel, before we go, would you share any parting thoughts and let folks know how they can get in contact with you once more? Yeah. The, the last thing I'll say is uh, if you think if you if you're concerned with justice in Illinois, if you think we could be doing it better, if you think that uh, we are vulnerable to bias and corruption, if you want to end cash bail, if you want to put in place the processes that would ensure that people like John Burge aren't able to do what they did for 20 years, if you want to make sure that pseudoscientists aren't helping to convict people who are innocent, um, you know, if you want to make sure that sentencing is fair, then we need Illinois Supreme Court justice, the Illinois Supreme Court to, to act, and we need to make sure that we get justices on the court who are on the record saying how they would act to improve these things. Um, we need mm -hmm. the community to get behind this. We need people to uh, to help make this uh, a priority. So if these things are important to you, if justice is important to you, if criminal justice reform and, and decarceration is important to you, then please get involved. And you can do that by going to EpsteinForSupremeCourt.com. That's E-P-S-T-E-I-N-F-O-R-S-U-P-R-E-M-E-C-O-U-R-T.com. And you can reach us on Facebook at Epstein for Supreme Court, Instagram, Daniel Epstein 85, Twitter, Epstein D, or you can find me on LinkedIn. You can email me at Daniel at Epstein for Supreme Court. Okay, great. So I'd like to thank everyone for listening to today's episode of Nonprofit Utopia. We have included links to resources in the comments section. And I encourage you to go to iTunes and to leave a review. We've included instructions in the comments section to guide you through the process. And be sure to join us next week when we talk about the importance of nonprofit compliance. So until then, you take care. And thanks again, Daniel. Thank you so much, Valerie. Mm -hmm. All right. Bye-bye. Take care.